Let's open our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6. I need to begin with an apology, sort of. The sermon notes, these are the right sermon notes, don't worry about that. Um, If you are a note taker, you'll discover by looking at the sermon notes in the bulletin, you are required to fill in three blanks. That's easy enough. Application. Application actually consists of 11 questions. So you have an inch. Have fun with that. That's my apology, sort of. I was in a cheeky mood when I put these together earlier in the week, and it struck me as quite funny doing that at the time. It still does, but uh, have fun with that then. 11 questions coming by way of application. Romans chapter 6. You know the great theme of this chapter For that matter, the great theme of chapters 6, 7, and 8 is sanctification, uh, holiness. It is no accident. We don't believe in accidents here at Grace Community Church. We believe in providence. It is no accident that in our care groups, beginning not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, we will embark on a six-month-long study of this book, entitled The Whole in Our Holiness. And so they will complement, that is, care groups, Sunday mornings for the next six months or so, they will certainly complement one another as we consider together this all-important theme. As I was reflecting on this a couple of weeks ago, the fact that they were going to come together, merge like this, this great theme in both our care groups and our Sunday morning worship, I thought to myself, well, that begs an obvious question. Uh, the question being this, is it, is it possible? Is it possible God wants to say something to us? Is it entirely possible? I believe it is that uh, there is a reason why we are going to be placing so much emphasis on this subject in the coming months. I believe there is. And I want to invite you to take note of a question. Either take note of it mentally, if you have a good memory, and you're able to burn it upon that gray cerebral mass of yours, or jot it down, and I ask you to consider it this coming week, and come back to it from time to time, Over the next few months, and the question I ask us all to consider is simply this. In light of Romans 6, 7, and 8, and in light of this book, is it possible God is calling my attention to something I have been neglecting? That's it. Very simple, very pointed, very straightforward. Given our study in Romans 6, 7, and 8, our study together of this book, is it possible God is calling my attention to something I have been neglecting, namely sanctification or holiness? I'm going to read a few extracts from this book to whet your appetite in anticipation of what's coming. I'm going to read a few extracts this morning. I'm going to begin with one which I read just over a month ago at our members meeting when I first introduced this book. I want to read it again to reinforce that question, to really get our attention and to cause us to uh, ponder seriously this subject. The author, 
Kevin DeYoung writes the following. Listen closely to this. I've been largely ignorant of camping my whole life. And I'm okay with that. It's one more thing I don't need to worry about in life. Camping may be great for other people, but I'm content never to talk about it, never think about it, and never do it. Knock yourself out with your cooler and collapsible chairs. The camping is not required of me, and I am fine without it. Is it possible you look at holiness just like that? It's fine for other people, but it's not really your thing. The hole in your holiness is that you don't really care that much about it. Passionate exhortation to pursue gospel-driven holiness is barely heard in most of our churches. It's not that we don't talk about sin. It's not that we don't encourage decent behavior. But too many of our sermons are basically self-help seminars on becoming a better you. That's moralism. And it isn't helpful. Any gospel which says only what you must do and never announces what Christ has done is no gospel at all. So I'm not talking about getting beat up every Sunday for watching Sports Center or driving an SUV. I'm talking about the failure of Christians, especially younger generations, and especially those disdainful of religion and legalism, to take seriously one of the great aims of our redemption and one of the required evidences of eternal life, namely, holiness. J.C. Ryle was right when he wrote the following, we must be holy. Because this is one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power. My fear is that as we rightly celebrate and in some quarters rediscover all that Christ has saved us from, we are giving little thought and making little effort concerning all that Christ has saved us to. Now, here is a fascinating question. Shouldn't those most passionate about the gospel, most passionate about God's glory, also be those most dedicated to the pursuit of holiness? Oh, I worry that there is an enthusiasm gap, but no one seems to mind. No one seems to mind. You know, it, it, it relates back beautifully to where we are at in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Because in those first five chapters, he has put on display, I mean, just a banquet feast, a smorgasbord, if you like, a delight, delectable, his description of justification. And this reality that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, sadly, far too many professing believers today declare a great resounding amen. And that's where it ends. It terminates with the last verse of chapter 5. That's all I want to hear. All I want to hear about is pardon. All I want to hear about is forgiveness. All I want to be reminded of week after week after week is what Christ has done, but do not place any duties upon me. 
Do not begin to utter any commands. Don't make any suggestions in regards to requirements. Don't speak of change, and please do not bring up that word holiness. Just remind me over and over again of what Jesus has done for me, and I will be perfectly happy. There is a disconnect, a disconnect between these two equally wonderful realities. That Christ came into this world to pardon us. That's justification. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And equally true, he came into this world to purify us. That is sanctification. May I say it? Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Two equally important, beautiful blessings of union with Christ, altogether the gospel. Christ died, gave himself on Calvary's cross, to pardon us, and to purify us. He gave himself on Calvary's cross to justify us and to sanctify us. With all that clearly before us, follow along now as we turn our attention again specifically to Romans 6. And I invite you to follow closely as I begin reading in verse 11. So you also, says Paul, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, those verses are striking, striking for a number of reasons. The reason I'm thinking of is this. They completely break the pattern. What do I mean by that? I did a little arithmetic this past week, and the number I came up with is 149. I didn't have a calculator at hand. I used my fingers, and I started counting back in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 6, verse 11, and I counted 149 verses. I have no idea how many words. Now, why is that striking? Striking for the following reason. Pay attention here. This is important. In those 149 verses, Paul only speaks grammatic, in grammatical terms, in what is known as the indicative voice. That is the indicative mood. Now, all of a sudden, in verse 11 of chapter 6, the mood changes. The voice changes. And he begins speaking in what? The imperative. And he gives three commands. Do you understand that relationship between indicative and imperative. Let me illustrate it for you. Uh, Jack is sitting on the chair. That is the indicative voice. I'm simply describing a fact. I'm simply describing things as they are. Jack is sitting on the chair. But then I turn to Jack and I say to him, Jack, stand up. That's no longer the indicative mood. What is it? That's the imperative. It's a command. Or Jill is standing over here. And so I say, look, Jill is standing, or Jill stands. 
I am simply describing events, things, happenings as they are. That is the indicative mood. But then I turn my attention to Jill and I say, sit down, Jill. What is that? It is the imperative. Are you getting it now? That in those 149 verses, it is indicative, indicative, indicative. All Paul is doing is describing the fact. All he is doing is describing things as they are. All he is doing is describing for us, explaining to us what it means to be in Christ Jesus. Why is he doing that? He wants us to grasp this. Oh, he so desperately wants us to understand what it means to be in Christ, to have our identity shaped by who we are, what we are in Christ, having explained all of that, having laid the foundation, the indicative, what does he do? He now gives commands. Oh, my friends, brothers and sisters, get this, and as I like to say, get it good. The imperative must flow from the indicative. If we begin with the imperative, commands, what do we end up with? Legalism. Commands must flow from the indicative. The commands that Paul gives, he is giving to, he is targeting people who now understand their identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. In lieu of who you are, in light of what you are, here is what I am now commanding you today to do. This, this, is, this is a pivotal lesson. I included it. One statement summarized it for you in the sermon notes. Here it is. There's this tremendous lesson, this all-encompassing lesson governing what it means to grow in holiness, or better, how we grow in holiness. Here it is. Our obedience. Our obedience or our growth in holiness flows it flows, it must flow from our appreciation of our identity in Christ. And so that's what's happened here. Paul has shifted gears. He is now speaking of sanctification. He is now building on this wonderful truth, reality, who we are in Christ. And his point is simply this, if you get it. And if you get it good, it is going to change by necessity the way you live. It will. If you understand who you are in Christ Jesus, well, here are the commands you're going to follow. He gives three, three commands. They're complicated when you first read them. They're a little wordy. Command number one, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Command number two into the 12th verse, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Third command into the 13th verse, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Three commands, imperative voice. I'm going to sum them all up in three statements. Three commands of my own. Here they are. Commandment number one. Know, K-N-O-W, know who you are. 
That's it. That's, the, that's all he's saying in the 11th verse. It really isn't that complicated, folks. The 11th verse. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. All he is saying is this. No, it's a commandment. No, who you are. Who am I? He has just explained in the first 10 verses. In the first 10 verses, what has he told me? He has told me, look, you have been baptized into Christ Jesus. When the Spirit of God, you know, when the Lord Jesus took a hold of you by the Holy Spirit, you know, the Spirit entered in and you responded in faith. Okay, you were knit together. You were joined together. That was a, a union. And uh, because you are baptized into Christ, you are united to him. Well, that has some pretty serious implications. And he emphasizes two things in the first 10 verses. He says, look, seeing as you are baptized into Christ, you are united to him in his death. You're one with him. And you are united to him in his life. You are one with him. Now, what I want you to understand this is what he's saying in the first 10 verses. I want you to understand this union, this baptism into Christ, this has some pretty serious consequences. This means some pretty serious things. First of all, it means something when it comes to the penalty of sin. It means something when it comes to the penalty of sin, because you see, you're one with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And because you're one with him, who by his death and resurrection paid the penalty for your sin, therefore, in God's reckoning, because you're one with the Lord Jesus, you have paid the penalty for your sin. Because his death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. It's counted to you. And so that has tremendous significance for the penalty of sin. But I want you to understand this. Christ's death and resurrection and your union with him in his death and resurrection has tremendous significance, not only for the penalty of sin, but for the very power of sin. The life you live, you no longer live. It is Christ who lives in you. That it is by Christ's very resurrection power and the Spirit of God now dwelling in you, that sin's dominion has been broken. Sin is no longer master. Sin no longer has total dominion, total domain. But the Spirit of God is there. And this is complicating. It is complicating, very complicating, and, and, and confusing for us. Why? Because Paul is describing sort of this in-between reality in those verses. And he's making the point, look, you're one with Christ in his resurrection. And I understand that that has a tremendous future significance. When Christ returns, and, and if we die before, then our bodies will be resurrected, our souls glorified with Christ, they'll be reunited, and there we will be. We will be with him, we will see him, we will be like him. And that is our, what we call our, our great hope, glorification. And that will be the consummation of the new creation. But Paul's point is this, look, even now, you have already entered into that life. Yes, we, we have not yet seen, we do not yet see those things which God has, has prepared for us. We have not yet entered into the final reality, our glorification. But that is not to dismiss for one moment the fact that Christ's resurrection power has significance right now. And so we live alive in the new creation life of the age to come while continuing to live in the present age. Oh, I know it's abstract, isn't it? Oh, it's abstract, I know. It's difficult to get the old noggin around it. Let me try to help here. Let me try to help. Let me put it in a, in a much larger context. Creation. What's going on? 
What's going on with creation? Well, creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the old creation, right? And yet we read that because of Christ coming into the world, the one by whom, for whom, and to whom all things are created, and by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, he is now the head of what? A new creation. Guess what? I'm not seeing this new creation. As I look around, it still looks like what? The old creation. But the word of God declares, no, 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 no. The new creation has been established. And Christ right now reigns at the head of that new creation. It was established at the moment of his resurrection. We are awaiting what? It's consummation. The new creation already exists. It has already been established. We are simply awaiting its consummation. My friend, the same holds true for you as a Christian. You are already a new creation. It's done. You are a new creation by virtue of Christ's death, burial, resurrection. Your union with him by virtue of the Holy Spirit, united to him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. What are we waiting for? The consummation. And so we live now in the life of the age to come. The consummation. While still living where? In the midst of this fallen creation. It's fascinating. You look at his language. It's confirmed later in these verses. Look at verse 13 for a moment. What does he say there? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So what does he say there? You've been brought from death to life. Meaning what? You're alive. Well, that's interesting because what does he say in verse 12? Let not sin therefore reign in your what? Mortal bodies. Meaning what? You're still subject to death. You're going to, well, which is it, Paul? Am I dead or am I alive? You're both. Because we live now, yes, in the life of that coming age. Yes, the consummation. We live it now in the midst of this fallen world, this overlap between the old creation and the new creation. And therefore, yes, the power of sin is broken in us by virtue of our union with Christ, but we await the eradication of our sin on that day yet future. This is what Paul wants us to know. And so he gives us a command in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves, know who you are, Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I promised I was going to read again from Day Young's book. Let me do that now. And I hope by doing this really stimulate your interest in reading this book carefully and studying it in the context of care groups related to this idea of know yourself. Day Young pens the following. It was one of those fall days in Michigan, perfect for playing in the backyard. I didn't know they had such days in Michigan, but there you go. A little cold, but just cold enough that it felt good to run around. I was playing soccer with my two oldest sons. Jacob, the younger of the two, was on my team against Ian, his older brother. After stopping Ian's shot on goal, I motioned for Jacob to run to the other end of the yard for a long pass. As he started running, I kicked the ball. The ball sailed past both sons and kept rolling, rolling, rolling until it finally found its way into the goal at the other end of the yard. Ian was a bit deflated. Jacob, five years old at the time, was amazed. With a look of wonder on his face, he turned to me and said in all seriousness, Wow, Dad, 
Only you and Jesus can do that. I can't really speak to Jesus' abilities at soccer. I checked Wikipedia and didn't get many details. But I can say that my son's pronouncement would have been theological dynamite if he had changed one little word. See, most of us know we're supposed to be like Jesus. On our better days, we even want to be like Jesus. We'd love for someone to look at our lives, see our godliness and say, wow, only you and Jesus can do that. This is not a bad sentiment, but the problem is with the word and. That conjunction ought to be a preposition. Only you in Jesus can do that. Christ-likeness, and this is, going to, this, is, this is just going to be paradigm shifting for some of us. Christ-likeness is possible. Christ-likeness is possible, but not by merely working with Jesus or simply imitating his example. Only by knowing our position in Jesus can we begin to live like Jesus. Oh, my brothers and sisters, know who you are. Consider yourselves. Who you are in Christ Jesus by virtue of your union with him and the significance of that for the penalty of sin. And the significance of that for the power of sin. There's a second command. Here it is. I'm going to sum it all up. The 12th verse. Be, B-E, who you are. Be who you are. Verse 12. Let not sin, check, notice the next word, therefore. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies. To make you obey their passions. So work through it sequentially. 11th verse, know who you are. Now he uses the word in verse 12, therefore, if you know who you are, given who you are, now that you grasp and fully understand and you're basking daily in this wonder of who you are in Christ, therefore, be who you are. Let not sin reign where in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Passions, we enter into the realm of desires. And these desires are expressed how our mortal bodies, our bodies become the conduit for the expression of our desires. And so the Apostle Paul is pinpointing our problem. He is identifying that our problem is basically idolatrous, that we have a problem with our desires, how they are oriented, how they are directed. And his point is this, simply now you know who you are. These desires which hold sway over you, these passions, they are not to reign in you. They are not, you're not to give expression to them through your bodies. Please don't misunderstand this. This verse, this command implies what? This is no walk in the park. Look what he says. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. What is that? What is that? What is that a hint of? He's hinting at a struggle. He's hinting at a conflict. He's hinting at a battle. And he is hinting above all else at a reality that sin is still very much alive in us. Yes, dominion has been broken. Yes, power has been broken. But its influence is still very much alive. Well, we therefore need to be who we are. Be what we know ourselves to be. How? 
by subduing those passions, those desires that desire to express themselves through the bodies. I've given you this illustration at least once before. Actually, I think twice before. But it's been a while, so you're due. I'm going to give it to you again. Here it is. I'm going to mix it up a little, though. There's a young married couple. Do you remember this one? A young married couple. And in this illustration, I usually pick on the young man, the husband. So I'm really going to mix it up and go after the young woman, the wife. She's a slob, all right? They've been married six months. She's just an absolute slob, okay? And uh, never picks. Her stuff is strewn throughout the house. She never picks up anything. Cooking? No, just no. I mean, she does mix it up. Pizza Hut and then a Simple Simon's, Uncle Jim's. So there's a little bit of variety in the pizza every night. She goes out regularly with her friends at evening, never tells her husband where she's going, away on weekends, and just, this goes on. This is it. Married life, six months. And, uh, you know, the, the husband realized, I don't, I don't think this is the way it's supposed to be. She went through the marriage counseling with me. I know this isn't the way it's supposed to be. So they're sitting down with the Pizza Hut pizza one night, and he looks at her across the table, and he realizes he needs to do something. He needs to say something. He needs to draw her attention to the way this is going and express, this just, this just cannot continue. Let me begin by telling you what he does not say. What he does not say. Here is what he does not say. Honey, you need to marry me. He doesn't say that. Why? Because it wouldn't make any sense. She's already married to him. What does he say? Honey, you're married to me. You need to start acting like it. That's all Paul is saying in the 12th verse, folks. Again, this is not algebra. This is not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. It is very straightforward. You know who you are. All Paul is saying is this. Act like it. You're married, brother. You're married, sister. You're one with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're united to him in his death. You're united to him in his resurrection. Be what you are. De Young has a wonderful couple of sentences on this. Let me read from him one last time. And I hope you're anxious now to pick up this book and read it and get out to care group if you're not in the habit of doing so and delving into some of the wonderful thoughts and insights and lessons he has here. De Young writes the following. In effect, so I want you to imagine, imagine this. In effect, God says to you right now, every believer, man, woman, boy, girl, right here, right now. In effect, God says to you, right now, this very moment, because you believe in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, I have joined you to Christ. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. He's in heaven, so you're in heaven. He's holy, so you're holy. Your position right now, objectively and factually, is as a holy, beloved child of God, dead to sin, alive to righteousness, and seated in my holy heaven. Four more words. Now live like it. That's all God is saying to you, brother. That's all God is saying to you. Know who you are. Please know who you are. And be who you are. Act like it. How? More to find these passions, these desires, the realm of desires, not giving them full sway through our mortal bodies. How? Give me more specifics. It brings us to the third command, into the 13th verse. Guard who you are. Guard who you are. Now, how, do I, how did I arrive at that? Well, look what he says in the 13th verse. 
The command actually has two sides. It begins with the negative and then moves to the positive. So the negative, 13th verse. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but, he moves to the positive, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. A couple of words we need to wrestle with. Do not present your members. What does he mean by members? He's referring to faculties. The faculties of the soul, our desires, our affections, our minds, our, our understanding, our conscience, our will. He also means the faculties of our bodies, the members of our bodies, as he's mentioned back in the 12th verse. We're not to present who we are, all that we are as body and soul. Do not present them to sin as instruments. The word literally means armaments. The military term. And so it conjures up the idea of that soldier who has armaments. And it's the soldier's responsibility to do what? To present, to use those armaments on behalf of his leader, his captain. That's the idea here. Well, you know, if you're an unbeliever, you have a captain. He's called sin. And unbelievers, that's all they can do. When it comes to presenting their members, their armaments, well, their faculties, body and soul, all they do is present themselves, all these things to their master, sin. But that's not you anymore. And so now you must present yourselves to whom? To God. As those remembering who you are. As those who've been brought from death to life. And your members, body and soul, to God. As instruments for righteousness. I'm going to give you seven, maybe eight commands as to what exactly this looks like. Here they are, quickly. No additional comment. What does it mean to present myself to God? How do I do that? In the light of Scripture, give attention to these. Number one, cultivate hatred for sin. That's how you do it. Cultivate a dislike for sin. Number two, reflect on the punishment sin deserves and see that punishment meted out at Calvary's cross. Number three, identify your proneness, your vulnerability to sin. Understand who you are. Number four, guard. Guard against occasions that lead to temptation. Number five, refuse to concede ground to sin. Because ground lost is extremely difficult to regain in spiritual warfare. Next, meditate upon God's incomparable greatness. And lastly, most important of all, remember what it means to be in Christ. Know who you are. Now, I promise that by way of application, by way of conclusion... I was going to give you 11 questions. 11 questions I'm wrestling through. And 11 questions I encourage you to consider seriously. I have framed these questions in a very specific way, fashion. And there is a motive behind this. In chapter 6, look at the start of verse 3. Do you not know? You see it. Chapter 6, verse 3, Paul asks, do you not know? Fast forward, still in chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know? And into the seventh chapter, first verse, there you have it again. Do you not 
No. And so I want to frame 11 questions using that phrase. Do you not know, brother? Do you really not know? Sister, do you really not know? Here they are, 11 questions, backed up with Scripture. Do you not know who God is? 1 Timothy 6, 16, he dwells in unapproachable light. Cody hit the nail on the head as he led us in our pastoral prayer this morning because he spoke of what? God's holy love. God's holy faithfulness. God's holy mercy. God's holy wrath. God's holy justice. God is holy. And all that he is, is holy. Do you know who God is? Second question. Do you not know God's will for your life? Do you not? You might be thinking to yourself, young man, young woman. Yeah, I'm wrestling with that right now. I'm guessing you're not really. At least not as scripture articulates it. Do you not know God's will for your life? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That's it. Your sanctification. Third question is this. Do you not know that it is impossible to see God without holiness? Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for the holiness without which no one, no one will see God. I mentioned it in the adult Bible class. I'll repeat it now quickly. Holiness is necessary, absolutely necessary for salvation. Not as its cause, but as its consequence. All whom God justifies, he sanctifies. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see God. Question number four. Do you not know that Jesus gave himself for you in order to cleanse you, sanctify you. Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Hear these words just quickly. Contrary to popular opinion, God does not accept us the way we are. Contrary to popular opinion, God does not accept us the way we are. Now hear these words. He accepts us in spite of who we are. By grace, he then turns us into what we were not. That's sanctification. That's an essential component of the gospel. Question number five. Do you not know that many of the issues in your life that you struggle with are related to your lack of holiness? Do you not know that many of your problems, many of your struggles, you can draw a straight line, no crooked, no slants, no deviation, nothing. A straight line between many of the problems in our lives and a lack of holiness. James 4, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Please do not misunderstand me. I am not suggesting for one moment that every issue, problem, struggle in my life right now is a result of a lack of holiness. That's not what I'm saying. I did not say every problem. My point is this, that many of those problems are. 
a good number of those problems are. You take stock, my friend. Take stock, Christian. You take stock of what it is that discourages you, depresses you, and alters your disposition from day to day. And you take careful stock of your relationships and those relationships which are broken, those relationships which are strained, and not in every case. Again, I know I have to hedge it and qualify it. Not in every case. But in many, many cases, if you delve into it, if you probe carefully, you will find what? There is a direct correlation between that problem and a lack of holiness. The sixth question is this. Do you not know that God's pleasure in you is contingent upon your holiness? Ooh, got to unpack that one. Do you not know that God's pleasure in you is contingent upon your holiness? Colossians 1.10. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. We can please God in one of two ways. We do please God in one of two ways. Understand this. I please God in Christ Jesus. It has absolutely nothing to do with me. Praise God. That's justification, folks, right? That's the foundation upon which we stand. I am pleasing in God's sight. God does declare my beloved son over me every day. That is my unalterable position in God's sight in Christ, pertaining to who I am. Oh, but I enter into the realm of sanctification. I'm no longer here speaking about God's pleasure in me because I am in Christ, which is ultimately God's pleasure in Christ. I'm speaking here of God's pleasure or displeasure in the holiness or lack of holiness in me. Oh, it wavers. There are ebbs and flows. Can you displease God, Christian? Yes, you can in the way you live. I am not speaking of your position in Christ Jesus. I am speaking of holiness and God's pleasure, displeasure in terms of what he sees in his children. That's something we must reckon with daily. It's no different from the relationship between a parent and child. Our children disobey us. When they disobey us, do we still love them? Yes, it's unchanging, unwavering, unalterable. Are we pleased with them at that moment? No, we are extremely displeased. These are not contradictory. There is no tension here. They are perfectly compatible. We're speaking of two different things. God is overwhelmingly pleased with me in Christ. I lay my head on my pillow every night and I get up and I can face the day because I know that does not change because it's his pleasure and delight in his son. Not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about God's love for holiness in me. If he doesn't see it, guess what? He is displeased. Do you not know that? Do you not know that God's pleasure in you is contingent upon your holiness? Question number seven. Do you not know that your love for God will stimulate holiness? John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, at its core, sin is always a lack of love. At its core, peel it. All the layers arrive at the core. Here's what you have. Sin is always a lack of love. Therefore, we grow in sanctification. How? By loving correctly. Loving correctly. Loving our God as he has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Question number eight. Do you not know that you can grow in holiness? 1 Peter 1.16. You shall be holy. It's a commandment. You shall be holy. For I am holy. We don't, it's not us and Jesus. It is us in Jesus. 
our obedience flowing from our appreciation of our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Question number nine. Do you not know that holiness requires effort? No way around it. Holiness requires, demands of you effort. I should insert a word there. Excruciating effort. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know? There's that question again. That's Paul's words. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. What's that got to do with anything? It's got everything to do with everything. That word self-control in the Greek is this. Listen for an English word. Are you ready? Agonizomai. Did you hear an English word? Agonizomai. It is the English word what? Agony. Self-control by definition. The pursuit of godliness by definition. Longing and striving after holiness by definition will lead to what? Agony. Agony. It requires excruciating effort. J.C. Ryle penned, the, the pursuit of holiness is a battleground, not a playground. Far too many of us are Christians. We're living in a playground, folks. It is not a playground. It is a battleground. Where there is grace, there will be conflict. There is no holiness without warfare. The tenth question is this. Do you not know that the pursuit of holiness is the pursuit of Jesus? Colossians 1.1, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Oh, if you want Jesus, you'll want holiness. If you want holiness, you want Jesus. It is to set our minds upon him. It is about living in Christ. And the final question, the 11th question, which brings us all the way back to our text is this. Do you not know who you are? Paul alludes to it. Chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Know it. Know who you are. Be who you are. And guard who you are. That is the message of Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. And may God give us eyes to see it. And may God give us the will to apply it in our lives and pursue after those things which are so pleasing in his sight. Our Father, we come to you now. And of course, we do acknowledge our need. We acknowledge our way waywardness. We confess our carelessness. We confess our general apathy and indifference to all that is pleasing in your sight. We do confess and acknowledge the fact that we are so easily amused and distracted. And yet we have entered through a narrow gate. And we are walking a narrow way. We have been called as Christ's disciples to take up our cross, to deny ourselves and to follow him. And we pray, our Father, that you would compel us on to do so by giving us a heightened appreciation for Christ and a far greater appreciation of exactly who and what we are in him. We come to you in childlike dependence. 
As the psalmist of old, we beg of you that you would deal bountifully with us, that you would be gracious to us, and give us the will to obey these commands so explicitly expressed in your word. We ask it of you for the furtherance of your kingdom, the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen.